Welcome to Change My Mind, where we talk to people about why it's so hard for them to take a new position, and they delve into an issue they've changed their mind on. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, Chief Exec of the Depolarization Project, based at Stanford in California. Hosting alongside me are Alex Chesterfield, a behavioural insight specialist and politician. Hi Ali, hi Laura. And Laura Osborne, back on the block after starting a whopper of a new job as comms and campaign director for London First, the voice of businesses in London. Hello Ali. Has it been a busy few weeks in the job, Laura, with Brexit? It has actually, perfectly timed. We updated our position on Brexit on my first day, so uh, yes, it has been a rather busy but enjoyable start. So today uh, our regular listeners might already have noticed that there's a bit of a change in tone and pitch. Um, It turns out that there are thousands of you regular listeners, so thank you so much for tuning in and for all the feedback that we've had so far. We're going for a bit of a new structure. Laura and Alex had the opportunity to interview our guests today, and then we're going to digest what they said together afterwards. We're really looking forward to today's guest, um, who we really went deep into how people change their mind and the effect of the environment around us on how we behave. He makes a really compelling case of the limitations of our own control on our behavior and how that's shaped, even as adults by the world around us. Alex, do you want to tell us a bit more about our guest? Yeah, sure. So Steve Martin joins us today as the Change My Mind guest. Steve, by the way, of behavioural science fame, not Hollywood fame. Um, I'm thinking Steve actually sometimes gets sometimes gets confused. He was telling us when he pitches up to hotels that reception staff are sometimes a bit crestfallen. I'm actually more impressed. Anyway, so Steve is the CEO of Influence at Work and a Royal Society-nominated author and expert in the field of influence and persuasion. Together with Dr. Robert Ciordini, who is probably the most preeminent social psychologist of our time, and Dr. Noah Goldstein, he is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Yes, 50 Secrets from the Science of Persuasion. So it's sold over a million copies and been translated into 26 languages. You might also be one of the two million people who read his regular business columns, including his monthly persuasion column. Have you guys ever read that in the, on the BA flight, in-flight magazine? I should probably confess that I'm a Delta and Virgin user. Sorry, BA, please Ooh. improve your service. And I never go anywhere, so... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, anyone who flies BA, you might recognise Steve Martin from his regular column in the InFlight magazine, as well as a regular feature for the Harvard Business Review. He's also a visiting professor of management practice and behavioural science at Columbia, uh, so the Graduate School of Business in New York, and also a guest lecturer at the London School of Economics and the Judge Business School in Cambridge. And now here's the tape of our interview with Steve Martin. Do stay tuned afterwards as well to hear our discussion and reflections of of what Steve said. So, Steve, you are a behavioural scientist, very famous behavioural scientist, and you sell multiple books um, on how to influence others. In your experience, where do people most commonly go wrong in trying to influence others? I... I think they go wrong in two ways, primarily. The first is, and I fall into this camp as well, um, as someone that falls into this trap, is I think that uh, we over-rely on information. We, we think that the best way to influence and change people's minds is to 
inform them into change. You know, uh, I have this point of view, I have all this logic that sits behind it uh, that has allowed me to form this point of view. And so therefore, if I, if I simply tell everyone else about it, they'll see the light as well. And, and as a result, that they'll change mm. as well. And um, what's interesting and slightly disconcerting is the fact that there's very little evidence that supports the idea that information alone is, is a good lever for effective influence and change. Um, it's generally quite a poor one. Um, so I think that's one mistake that we fall into. The other mistake I think that we often fall into is we don't differentiate clearly enough about the goals that we actually have. And, and often when you know, people come to us and they say, well, how could I persuade this group to think this? Or how do I persuade or influence these people to, you know, behave in these ways? They're not really that interested in changing minds. Um, they're really interested in just changing people's behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes we also fall into that trap of thinking that in order to change someone's behavior, we have to change their minds first. And I'm not entirely convinced about that at all. There's lots of examples, I think, in everyday life where people behave in certain ways that are entirely counter to an attitude or a belief that they might hold. Um, and so I think those are the two primary reasons why I think we fall into these traps. You know, And, if, and that's really interesting about the idea you don't need to change minds to change mm. behaviour. Have, have you got an example of where classically people have tried to, I guess their goal has been trying to change a behaviour, but they've gone via changing minds first and where it hasn't worked? Well, I guess the obvious one that everyone can relate to would be smoking. You know, um, Do you smoke? You no. smoke? No, no. Did you smoke? I did used to smoke yeah. many, many so years ago. Any regularity. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I think even most smokers accept that there's lots of reasons you know, steeps largely in good medical evidence that mm. it's probably not a good idea yeah. to smoke. You should be doing it anymore. And you probably shouldn't be doing it. That doesn't stop them doing it. Yeah. Um, and I also think there's there's other, perhaps, maybe not as kind of substantive, substantive examples, but, you know, one of the examples I like, um, and I'm not saying that this happens all the time, but, uh, you know, you occasionally see driving around London and, you know, most of the, the, the big towns and the cities, generally in the morning, you know, on the school run, you know, people driving around in these big gas-guzzling four-by-fours with Save the Planet stickers on the back of them. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and yeah. to me, there's a, yeah. there's a good example of uh, outwardly I want people to think this about me, mm -hmm. but actually in this moment, the most important thing to me is to be able to get as close as I can to the school gates to drop the kids off. You know, so there's there's an element of the environment that we find ourselves in at a given moment in time that disproportionately shapes our behaviour that will often be in contrast to, if we really thought deeply about it, whether or not that's something we would actually sign up to and whether our minds would be changed as a result of it. So, yeah, these conflicts occur everywhere, I think. Um, so it sounds like a lot of those things are quite just embedded in the way people behave. How do you try to sift through them a bit? So if you if you want something like your 
if you want to influence someone on how they change their behaviour towards the environment, how, how do you do that when they're thinking, I just want to be seen in my big car at the school gate at the same time as holding that belief that they're not really acting on? How, how do, those things are quite incompatible, aren't they? They how are. Like, like signaling, together, or I'm how wealthy, do you get there? I've got status, yeah. yeah versus well, I want to protect the environment. I'm not entirely sure if it's actually signalling I'm wealthy, I'm, you know, I've got this status. It, it may be for some people. For yeah. some people it might actually be... You know, I just want to get to the front gate and get my kids off and, you know, make sure that I can wave them off and see them go through the school gate because that, to me, is a signal that my kids are safe. And that, mm. to me, you know, is entirely rational. But I think what you're talking about primarily here, Laura, is this conflict that often occurs between the different motivations that we all uh, have mm. um, to behave in certain ways. Um, so, you know... Uh, two of my colleagues who um, I've previously written with, um, Bob Cialdini, uh, an eminent social psychologist from, from Arizona State University, and, and Noah Goldstein, who's uh, actually a, a professor at the Anderson School at uh, UCLA um, and I, a few years ago, you know, published work that suggests that when it comes to you know changing people's behavior, not necessarily their minds, it's really hard to change people's minds. Mm. Uh, but when it comes to changing and influencing people's behavior, you're likely to be most successful if your pitch, if you like, or if your request or your, you know, your point of view is aligned to one of three fundamental human motivations. And those motivations are the idea that we want to make accurate decisions in efficient and rewarding ways. Uh, and we want to make those accurate decisions in a way that allows us to connect to others. We're primarily social creatures. But then here's where the conflict comes in, which is that we want to be connected to others, but at the same time, we kind of want to stand out a little bit from the crowd as well and you know, kind of feel perhaps a little better about ourselves than, than others. And so you've got these conflicts. And so you know, it does strike me that a message or some approach that allows as many of those three motivations to be satisfied is more likely to affect a change in behavior, mm. not necessarily in mind. And for some people, if you can get them to do it enough, over time, maybe their minds will catch up with them. Mm. But I'm, I'm not convinced that changing people's minds has any effect on their behavior necessarily, but the reverse might be true. Yeah, that's interesting. So if we're, so I guess part of the reason we're doing this podcast is we are keen to um, increase people's tolerance of opposing viewpoints. So for example, myself and Ali are both, well, Ali's a Lib Dem, probably a bit more on the left, I'm a bit more on the right. Laura, you're probably a bit in the middle. We're <laughs> probably a bit in the middle. So how do we, how would, how should we approach this kind of problem, which... I'm, I'm trying to think, trying to translate that aim into a kind of behavioural, like mm. what kind of behaviours would we want? I guess we want people to listen and actively consider other people's opposing viewpoints. So how do we take your that thinking, so um, thinking like a behavioural scientist and apply it to this kind of problem without relying and on And yeah. a little bit of delayed <clears throat> judgement. I think that's part of it. You know, suspend judgement for long enough right. to at least hear yeah. what's being said. Yeah. Yeah, that's a. It's a tough question. I, I I think my 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 initial reaction to that would be to 
almost dismiss the idea that you want to change someone's mind. Um, because almost by trying to do that, you rise into prominence and opportunity for people to see the differences between themselves. Mm. And then that frames the argument to a certain extent. That you are different. That yeah. you are different. And and so maybe, maybe the approach is to be more inclined to think about how do you change mindsets in a given moment of time rather than direct attention to the, the different minds that are in character. Mm. It reminds me of... Um, so I like this study because, A, it's an entertaining one, and I think, B, most people that I speak to about it are able to connect with it in some way, even though it's about football or soccer for US uh, listeners. And it was a study that Mark Levine, who's a, a social psychologist up at Lancaster University, conducted a few years ago where he had supporters of Manchester United. And, and I, I think, you know, football supporters are... Uh, tribal by nature. Extremely <laughs> tribal. The best thing you think my, of is tribal. Yeah, I was thinking about my husband. Yeah, sobbing. Yeah. yeah. My um, my husband supports Everton, which lose a lot. So does mine. Really? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> well, there you go. So, 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 so maybe you can agree <laughs> yeah, after all. Yeah. yeah. So they, they they lose a lot, and my son, who's six, is is choosing at the moment his football okay. team, and my husband was taking the very um, you know, decent stance that Ted, my son, can choose whatever team he wants. I'm not going to influence him at all. Week one at school, Teddy comes home. Daddy, I'm going to support Arsenal. No beep way are you supporting <laughs> Arsenal. Yeah. Yeah, I hate Arsenal. Any team but Arsenal. Week two, I'm going to support Liverpool. Oh, that's Station even worse. On. Exactly, it's even worse, <laughs> even worse. So, yeah, extremely um, tribal. Yeah, so when a dad yeah. says to his son, support any team you like, what he's essentially saying is, you can support any team you like from this list of one. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yes. yes. And I'll only be with you if that's yeah. the choice. Exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Exactly right. Um. <laughs> Sorry, so saying about your study. No, yeah, yeah. So, well, not my study, but 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 Mark Levine. So, yeah. so he enrolls these Manchester United supporters, invites them along to the psychology lab, and essentially asks them to spend some time talking with each other about their love of Manchester United. And and essentially what he's asking them to do is to marinade their brains, if you like, in the love of the Red Devils. In their shared joy. In their shared <laughs> yeah. joy, in their allegiances, in, yeah. in these kind of... And then, you know, they, they do that for 10, 15 minutes, however long it is. I, I don't recall exactly. And then he asks them to go to another building on the university campus to take part in another supposedly unrelated experiment. And on that journey between one building and another, they encounter someone who's running through the university, like a, a keep fit person, a jogger, mm. who is actually a stooge, part of the experiment, and has been instructed to trip up in front of these groups of Manchester United supporters um, and feign an injury of sorts. And the real experiment is essentially how many Manchester United supporters are willing to help this jogger as they run through the university and they find that they, they've injured themselves. And what Mark finds is it really depends on what colour shirt they're wearing. Mm. And if they happen to be adorned in a similar kind of colours and signals to, to Manchester United, yeah. then largely they're, they're very happy to help, stop. If they're dressed neutrally, let's say just white, um, less likely to help. 
But if that jogger happens to be wearing the colors or signs or symbols of an adversary, a, a different blue, tribe, a so a Man City or something, <laughs> yeah. then an altogether different outcome arises. Now, wow, that's stark. Stark, <laughs> yeah. but in the context of some of the things you just said about, you know, yeah. Yeah. football and tribes, yeah. understandable. So, so the question really that it, that leads us to is, is there any context or situation where, uh, you know, a similar group of tribe, Manchester United supporters, say, for example, would be more willing to help a rival or an adversary? And it turns out there is. Uh, when Mark Levine asks Manchester United supporters to instead of spending lots of time talking about and between themselves their love of their club, if he instead asks them to talk about their love of the game more broadly, mm. what does it mean to be a supporter of this incredible game? You know, what are the benefits, the characteristics of being one of a much larger group, almost like a superordinate group? Mm. And when that was the focus of their attention, and they then encountered the dissimilar jogger, it wasn't the case that suddenly they leapt to everyone's aid. In fact, actually, I, I recall that it was, I think, about 10% of the time they'd help a rival if they were focused primarily on what it meant to be a Manchester United supporter, and about 30% of the time if they were first focused on what it meant to be a football supporter, mm. that superordinate goal. Now, that doesn't, they're still in the minority. You know, it still means that the majority are going to be, you know, resistant to, to helping or to looking to the point of view of someone else who isn't considered in their in-group. But, you know, to go from yeah. 10 to 30%. It's a big difference. It's a though. big difference. Yeah. And especially in the context of some of the divisions that exist at this moment in time. Mm. Um, and... I think what that illustrates nicely is the idea that um, at no point were their minds changed. Instead, what was changed was what their minds at a particular moment in time were directed mm. towards. <clears throat> so, so, so the mind, yeah, the frame of reference, the mindset. Mm. And I think so, you know, mm. you know, I'm a I would regard myself as unapologetically practical and pragmatic when it comes to behavioral science. Um, you know, I think there's some incredible research that goes on and, you know, we're in this golden era where increasing numbers of people are thinking this is, you know, an amazing body of research to tap into. But I'm, I'm, I'm not especially uh, inclined to spend too much time on research that's interesting for the sake of being interesting, that has no practical relevance. Yeah. Whereas this, to me, does seem to have some applicabilities. Actually say, well, what we direct people's attention to before we start the discussion mm. has as much influence over the outcome of that discussion as the discussion itself. Mm. And, and that does seem to me to be interesting. So in the context of yeah. should we be changing minds, I think my response is probably not because that's tough. Maybe the easier route to take is to think about how we change mindsets before we engage in the conversation. And one way of doing that seems to be drawing to attention this the commonalities between yourself and and others. 
Potentially, yes. Yeah. Um, or choosing different messengers to introduce ideas or essentially changing the environment um, that that someone is paying attention to or is residing in in a given moment in time. I think it's the case yeah. that, you know, the environment that we're actually in. So my colleague, um, Robert Cialdini, has this wonderful saying. He says, often... Who we are at a given moment in time is where we are in that given moment in time. It's almost like there's a geography to mm. our behavior. Uh, you know, there's an, a locational quality. And where we happen to find ourselves in a given moment in time has a, a primary influence over the actor that we are or the agent that yeah. we are in that moment in time. Yeah. So I want to pick up on your point a moment ago. Uh, you mentioned about another way to, I guess, achieve our aim without changing minds is by changing messengers. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I can. Um, it it comes with a bit of a, a, a kind of a health warning, if I may, which is that it, it, it's a it's a piece of work that myself and a colleague of mine, Joseph Marx, uh, uh, you know, a brilliant PhD. Uh, researcher up at UCL have been working on for about two years now. So it's, it's, it's not complete. And maybe Joe should come back uh, at a point in time Absolutely. later this year yeah. and, and, and talk to you about it. But yeah, one of the things that, that, yeah, one of the things that I've been interested in and Joe as well is this idea that how is it possible that a messenger, let's say person A can deliver a message or, or, or make a claim or say something that an audience is, willing to accept as accurate and true. And another messenger can come along and largely say the same thing. And that same audience reject it out of sorts as having any relevance or, you know, robustness or, uh, you know, relevance whatsoever. And, and we all know situations, you know, you know, in work, for example, the, the number of times, you know, I'm sure we've been into situations where we've been saying something for, for, for months and it's largely been dismissed. And then someone else comes in and says the same thing and everyone goes, oh, that's a wonderful idea. We should totally do that. Oh, it's so annoying. It's <laughs> so annoying. So annoying. <laughs> Being there, done that. Yeah. yeah. Got and, that annoyance. And we all have those stories, those yeah, very so explicit memories of that happening to us. And the point that, is interesting to us is it can't be the message. It can't be what's being said that is carrying sway. It has to be the messenger. And one of the conclusions that we are coming toward in this, in this new piece of work is the idea that in this increasingly complex connected, ambiguous, information overloaded world that we're actually mm. living in, is that it's becoming increasingly hard to explicate what is being said from who is saying what is being said. So it's almost like a shortcut. Just yeah, it's, it's, it's almost to the point where the messenger now is the message. Mm. Okay. And that essentially is the the study of work we've been involved in for about the last two years that we've been writing up and 
that Alex, you've seen early drafts of, and I apologise for that, but thank you. Listeners, <laughs> it's going to be a good book. I'm going to put a plug in right now. Out in September the... September 19th, I think. September, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and, and we've... Yeah, we're, we're kind of suggesting that there are essentially two routes to the modern-day effective messenger. Mm. Um, one is a function of status. So what these messengers tend to do is to get their message accepted, not as a result of what they're saying or any merits to their case, but more because their audience regard or perceive them to have some elevated status. So essentially they get their message heard by... um, you know, their position of status over an audience. Um, and we largely, I mean, we're calling these hard messengers. Yeah. You've got um, an example of a hard, like who might be, would Trump be a hard messenger? Trump is definitely a hard messenger. Yeah. Uh, because uh, he largely um, uh, positions dominance. You know, the, so we talk about different effects that um, make up hard messengers. You know, rich and famous people are hard mm. messengers. Uh, um, you know, experts are typically hard messengers. Mm. Uh, because they have some, you know, elevated status of it. Dominant, that those that are dispositionally dominant or, um, you know, adopt those those positions are, are hard. And physically attractive people have that advantage, that status advantage. And I don't want to get into too much detail because I don't want to spoil the podcast. Then Joe uh, is going to come along and <laughs> hopefully uh, do with you in in September or so. Um, and then by contrast, there are those messengers that we label as softer messengers. So they don't get their message accepted because they have status over an audience. They get their message their messages accepted because they have some connectedness with an audience. So they're seen as warm mm. or trustworthy or vulnerable mm. or charismatic. And these various different effects play out in society. And the combinations of those effects are super interesting. But what's really interesting is how when we come to see that a messenger possesses one trait, we come to often believe that they possess other traits that have nothing to do with that first trait. No relevance whatsoever. And it is. You know, would it be acceptable for society to have, you know, a cohort of incredibly extreme views, but they behave in ways that are entirely desirable and pro-social? Yeah. Um, or would you want the reverse? Yeah. Um, to be, you know, largely, you know, vanilla about oh. certain things, but then to behave in certain, you know, extreme ways. That That's, uh, for, for, yeah, beyond my... I think we need to schedule another second podcast. Second yeah, and, and, and not for me. Not <laughs> for me. Maybe, that will maybe. be someone uh, vastly more experienced in those uh, fields. Have we got the right podcast? Have we got the right... Two. Yes, part two. <laughs> yeah. Change your mind, delete, not uh, change, change your behaviour. Behavior. More important. Yeah. Um, I think actually that leads on to the to the kind of I guess one of the key questions that we ask all guests is what what have you changed your mind on? I've been dreading this. <laughs> so many people have said that to us. I mean, although maybe we should ask you what have you changed? Your, what what behaviour have you changed? <laughs> yeah, what try to change your mind first? Well, plenty of behaviours. Uh, plenty of behaviours. <laughs> and and, and you know, first. I used to be a smoker, so I gave up smoking. So okay. there's there's things on. 
So that was our interview with Steve Martin. So as the conversation wound on, Steve went on to talk about changing his mind on being a behavioural artist and becoming a behavioural scientist. So how in the 1990s and before, it was totally acceptable to come up with sales and marketing ideas, for example, off the top of your head after a boozy lunch, and then just run at them with no evidence. Uh, and how even in pharma, where Steve was working at the beginning of his career, which is a really notoriously evidence-based sector, so you know, running hardcore randomised controlled trials to see which medicines work and which don't. It wasn't the case in their marketing department when it came to assessing what actually worked in influencing people's choices. Now, it was funny. I think he really hit on something there and something that made a lot of sense for both of us with a you know, degree of each of us having a comms background, you know, where before the big shift to an evidence base, which let's be honest, only really came about because government comms and marketing people ran out of money. So had to prove an ROI around the time of the crash. You know, it was very much a gut feel for what worked. And, you know, you had a budget and you had a sense of what might reach your audience. But, you know, anything more than that wasn't really standard across the industry. I mean, there's still a place for that, but I think we're all agreed that the science gives us a much better idea of what actually works yeah. and you know, what we're actually spending our money and on. And what doesn't work as well. Absolutely. As I was listening to it, because I, I wasn't able to participate in the, the conversation, thank you very much to a bout of bronchitis, um, but I was struck by a couple of things that that both of you pulled out from what Steve was saying about how it's really so hard to change habits, but yet he had been able to to do that with smoking and how much of that was because of the, the world around him and the changing social acceptance around smoking in, in public places, for for example. And, and that just really stood out to me. And I know, Alex, you said that you'd never smoked and Laura, I got the impression you'd had the odd crafty cigarette as a teenager. But I, I, wondered, if, <laughs> Maybe. I wondered if that might have affected you as well yeah I think it's an interesting one isn't it we, we talked to Steve about it a bit because I think in particular you know people always say now that for people who smoke you can really smell it everywhere in a way that you never used to be able to because everything smells of smoke so you know if you went into the pub everybody came out smelling of smoke if you went you know anywhere it's just the especially on train carriages do you remember people used to smoke on the train like that seems like a and on aeroplanes um, and that's just shifted so much now because you would feel so out of place if you did that. You know, I think even people who vape are really careful about where they vape now, even though that doesn't even smell bad just because there's been such a change in attitudes towards, you know, the impact it has on other people. Mm. I think it also it also shows the shift in the thinking around what does change people's behaviour from or it's somebody it's an individual deciding to change their behavior on their own to actually the effect of the environment and others around them that changes behavior. So it's interesting to think of that in the context mm. of this podcast and as an increasing open-mindedness and tolerance in terms of, you know, what what does that mean? What does that mean for what we're trying to do? What the podcast is trying to do? Well, I think yeah, you really strike on something there because there's there's something around if I spend time with other people who are open-minded, I know that I find it easier to be open-minded myself. But if I'm around other people who are taking really strong positions, it becomes much harder to do that, you know. Mm. Um, but I do worry. I mean, you know, academic institutions are kind of notorious for taking a step back and enjoying that kind of um, bat about. But actually, do you then become disconnected from the real world? 
Mm. Another thing that well really stood out for me from Steve's interview was uh, his point and actually the focus of his new book around the effect of who the messenger is rather than what the person is actually saying. So I guess to paraphrase Steve or to quote Steve, it's you know, the messenger now is the message. That also made me really stop and think. Yeah, I think we talked about that a bit afterwards as well, didn't we, in terms of those kind of more frustrating moments where you feel like you might have said something. So to say in a meeting at work, you know, you might have said something interesting, useful, whatever. And then someone else says it later, you know, albeit in a slightly different way or perhaps just because of who they are. And suddenly everyone's like, oh, yeah, like 100%, totally get it. Um, And, you know, we, we were questioning whether... You know, historically, sometimes that has happened a bit more if the last person to say it was a man. Um, mm. But, it, you know, it is an interesting question, isn't it? You know, why why that happens and perhaps why that happens more now, if, if indeed that's the case. I do. Yeah, I do. I do remember with the uh, Theresa May's infamous description of the Tories as being the nasty party. I remember some of the polling and the research around that that showed where when policies were presented as Labour or, or Lib Dem, they were seen as great and, you know, yes, I'm really up for that. But as soon as they were exactly the same ideas or policies were presented to the same people as Tories or, or, or a different sample, it was, um, they were seen as, you know, rubbish, hated. And that was purely the effect of the, um, of where it's coming from, of, of the source. Yeah, and I mean, I find it, it's a very different context, but over on this side of the Atlantic, you know, when... President Trump says things around wanting to bring war to a close in in Korea and, you know, bring peace there. That's something that you would normally expect, you know, people who were in favour of peace, which most of us are, to be supportive of. But there's a lot of people who find that instantly a really hard thing to be on board with because Trump has said it. Um, And that's before you start getting to the geopolitical issues and what they're looking at there. It's who the messenger was that means that they automatically dismiss it. And I know sometimes, you know, I have the same thing in my head when people that we disagree with say something and I think like, God, you know, I don't want to agree with them because it's them who's saying it, you know? Yeah. Um, it turns out yeah. assholes can be right sometimes as well. And you've got to give them the space to be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's really hard, though. That's really, really hard. But I said to say, talking of work and how people identify with things, I thought the football or soccer analogies were, <laughs> were fantastic. But what I really loved, girls, is we've all known each other for like five, ten years or something. And you two had no idea that your husband supported the I same know. football team. <laughs> we need to get them together. I don't think it's a thing like being an Everton supporter I don't think it's a thing you shout about overly loudly and certainly if you have the misfortune of of living with one well, it's just bloody depressing you isn't it that information. no they always losing <laughs> they always lose I made the mistake it's like well that's terrible terrible taste in football too yeah I mean I made the mistake <laughs> when I first got together with Will of saying well it's only a football game uh, you know, let's life moves on, and learnt never ever to ever repeat that kind of message ever again. And who does your son support now, Alex? Everton, actually, <laughs> much to my husband's delight. Ah, so he was swayed. He was, yes, he was definitely, definitely, he definitely changed his mind. Definitely wasn't persuaded. <laughs> I think Will's been reading Steve Martin's book. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it probably was important who the messenger was at that point as to who your son supported. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. On that yeah. note, we should um, draw this to a close. Alex and Laura, thank you so much for interviewing Steve. And I've really enjoyed this 
chat afterwards. I want to say a huge thank you to our listeners for joining us too. Let us know how you feel about the new format with discussion afterwards. And also if there's anybody that you'd like us to interview, we've got some stonking guests lined up, but it turns out lots of people like talking to us about how they change their mind. You can find out more info about us and some of the academic studies that we've cited on depolarizationproject.com. We'd like to thank Open Democracy for sharing this with their many, many readers. Caroline Crampton, our wonderful producer who makes us sound better every week and kevin mcleod whose dreams become real is our intro and outro music licensed under creative commons